Tarquin. Thanks for being on the show with me today. Tarquin is a professional bartender, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what it's like uh, working behind the bar, because I know we've talked a lot about what it's like working, uh, producing spirits, but mm -hmm. now I really want to dive into how bartenders use the spirits we make to make cocktails and things. Yeah, <laughs> and, and well, and I think it's an interesting time for that, because uh, as we are discussing before we started the recording, there are some distinct eras of bartending in Canada, uh, North America, um, and that had a, a big impact or a big impact for that was prohibition. You had a generation of bartenders that knew how to bartend really well that effectively moved away over that decade of prohibition. And they went to places like Paris and, and London and that those, those cities continued to have very strong cocktail bar cultures where the cultures uh, of uh, a lot of Canadian cities uh, kind of tapered off over time as people retired and the knowledge wasn't passed forward. By the time <laughs> I got into hospitality about 20 years ago, the knowledge I would say was effectively lost something as simple as a Manhattan, you know, drinks that in 1930 were the biggest drinks in the planet and were just standard operating procedure. A lot of re like restaurants and bars in Canada just had completely lost the knowledge of both how to make them, how to keep the ingredients in optimal condition uh, how to accent them with bitters, all of it was gone. So by the time I was, I was an eager student, eager to learn in my first restaurant job, I realized very quickly that people didn't, couldn't tell me anything because no one knew how to make anything. <laughs> and, and even something as simple as, uh, using fresh lemon, fresh lime, something that is just pretty standard again, uh, had been lost to the idea of using powdered sour mixes that obviously, I mean, they taste like something, but they don't taste good. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you tell me again, like, how did you get your start in bartender? Sure. Bartending? Yeah, I don't know how spicy you want the, uh, the story to be. But basically, I was raised in a high control group. Um, that group allowed people to drink. But... It, it put a lot of pressure on me, a lot of fear, guilt, and obligation, a lot of ways. So I came out into adulthood already married and without any education because uh, my understanding at that time was that we were months away from Armageddon. The, the world was going to end. No need to go to school. No need to like have any sort of career or any sort of plan to be an expert in any field of anything other than you know, just constantly keep your eyes in, in somebody's version of the Bible and that'll be good enough. And of course the world didn't end in the late nineties, which was a shock to me. Oh. <laughs> and so at some point I realized I'm probably going to need some money more than, you know, uh, the basic money that I was subsisting on. And so I was working in a hospital, um, and I got a part-time job in a restaurant and that restaurant happened to be a fine dining restaurant. So it, it had amazing food. You know, they baked their own breads. They, you know, they, they made their, all their desserts from scratch. They had an awesome uh, wine list with amazing wines by the glass. But then the beer and the spirits were a complete afterthought. And when I looked at the sales for the restaurant, the sales of the alcohol was over half. So you had all these people working in the kitchen and prepping food 12 hours a day 
And yet the alcohol with no effort and no mindfulness whatsoever was still forming the majority of the sales for this location. And so I asked the owners if I could, if I could just take a look at the beer list and take a look at the, the spirits list to see if I could optimize sales by making the drinks better. It opened a door that I didn't even know existed. The idea of a bartender didn't really exist to me. I mean, they're like, I understood making a drink. I didn't know that there was a history and a profession surrounding it and a culture surrounding it. So that was kind of the first part. In terms of what happened then, um, as we were talking before the recording before, I started off pretty humble in the goal of going to the owners and saying, look, you have 17 beers, 15 of them are lagers. Maybe we should see if there's other types of beer because <laughs> mm -hmm. we probably don't need 15 different types of lagers. And so that became kind of easy. And then as soon as I started to uh, source beer, largely which was craft beer, and that was a developing movement in the early aughts was our, our movement towards craft beer. What happened was a lot of the places that made beer also made spirits because they're kind of a one-two step, as, as you well know. You start with uh, fermentation and then the isolation of fermentation being distillation. It became this very logical leap-off point where you would talk to a brewer and they would explain how beer was made. And then they would just offhand mention, oh, and by the way, we also make all these spirits. And so uh, one of the first brewer slash distillers that I met personally was uh, from Whitehorse, Bob Baxter, who owns Yukon Brewing and mm -hmm. uh, two, two um, oh, no, I'm going to blank on the name, but uh, two brewers, there we go, <laughs> the most obvious name, two brewers whiskey is released by Yukon Brewing in Whitehorse. And so I got an, an opportunity at one point to visit their facilities in Whitehorse and they were showing me how they would take the the pot still that they used to to make their beer and with a couple interesting uh mechanical uh adaptations added to it that they could also distill and then they showed me this wall of barrels that would eventually become their their highly renowned whiskey and at that moment i was both fascinated by the spirit but I was also fascinated by the idea of honoring the spirits by by doing something good with them. So powdered sour mix isn't going to go super well with uh, a whiskey that was, you know, came from a curated uh, grains and, and went through this beautiful elaborate process and then sat in a barrel for years. And then I mixed it with sour mix. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't seem like the answer that anybody wanted. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and there were other things that made me super curious, like uh, we had a bottle of Campari on, mm -hmm. on the shelf in the restaurant. I'd never heard of Campari. I'd never tasted it. The first time I tasted it was because an, uh, a customer who was from Europe ordered a Campari and soda. And I tried Campari and I was like, this is poison. <laughs> but instead of thinking, okay, all I'm going to do is assign whether or not I like a spirit or not. It, it became very clear to me that I needed to understand why, why things are made, why they exist, how they were traditionally used in the places that they came from. And so Italy was a logical starting point with aperitivos and, and, and amaros and digestifs and all the different plants and botanicals that go into that. And then on the whiskey side, right away, you know, why this barrel, why that char, 
you know, all the different things that go into it and how to honor those things once you it comes time for the bartender to mix them together. It felt like the bartender should be every bit as important as everyone else down the line. So that, uh, again, to cycle back to that same idea that you didn't take all this time to make this beautiful product and then just mix it with, uh, some, some soda pop at the end mm-hmm. it felt like, um, it felt like a very cheap end to a, mm. to a beautiful process. Mm-hmm. And so, so it just, I started, I started, uh, learning about spirits while simultaneously learning about the cocktails that they were traditionally most popular in. Um, so I don't, I don't know if you have a follow-up question to that, but. Okay. Yeah. So you were in the restaurant, you started mm-hmm. with the beer list and then you want, got more interested into spirits. And so where did that take you next? Scotland. <laughs> oh, you went to Scotland My, uh, around oh. that period. Yeah, I went to Scotland, uh, and again, I I wasn't a bartender yet, but I was starting to make drinks and starting to feel, you know, kind of confident. The one thing that you have to always look out for as a bartender is not to get too high on your own supply, and I definitely did that. And I, I think that that's a danger in the beginning because you're the you're the final face within a business of the art and illusion of spirits. So you need to. You know, you, and and you work to become very technically skilled and and very graceful in your movements, and and Japanese bartending culture had a big influence on that. We can cycle back to that idea, but um, I was learning, and I was eager, and that eagerness though probably came across as kind of like pedantic and and kind of egotistical. Um, but I didn't want to be that way. I wanted to learn more and and become. Mm-hmm kind of more solidly grounded in the history of, of what I was doing. And I didn't really know where to start, but, um, when I was, I was gifted a bottle of single malt whiskey, uh, by my dad, actually, my dad was, uh, terminally ill at that point when I had just started in hospitality and he left me a bottle of, uh, it was Balvenie double wood, 17 year scotch. Beautiful. My first taste of it, of course, wasn't for me. I hadn't acquired a palate for it yet. But because of the source, because it came from my dad, and it was such a big thing. It was the last gift I ever got from my dad of a, like a physical gift. I, I needed it to mean something more than what was purely in the bottle. Uh, so I, you know, I started sipping on it and I was like, what should I do? What should I do? I need to do something with my life. Uh, and I, I, I hit on the idea that I would sell everything I own. And I would go to Scotland and I would visit distilleries and I'd have people show me how to make whiskey and that hopefully that would provide uh, an idea moving forward uh, as a career. And so I did. I sold everything I owned, um, hopped on a plane, showed up in the UK with not much of an idea of what to do and got to Edinburgh. Uh, I was staying on Calton Hill for anybody who's watching that might have been to Edinburgh before. It was beautiful. I was a couple doors down from Sean Connery's official residence because he. I, I found out once I arrived that he was a member of Scottish Parliament. Um, oh, what? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. His, his post-acting career, he was a member of Parliament. And and the city was beautiful and majestic and and had all these different the way that you can walk around that city is is endless because there aren't really fences anywhere. Um, you can go through all these closes in between buildings and you can just map different ways through the city. So that was amazing. And that'll kind of lead to something on the bartending side in a second. But I did go and visit some of the um 
the distilleries that I could get to, like Tullibardine, Ball Blair. I saw the immenseness of the production. I saw how you had farm and agricultural products coming in, cereal coming in, and whiskey going out, and all the techniques to get there was, I was floored. But the one thing I kept on hearing from the the distillers was, you know, this is a sacred spirit, which I believe uh, is true. And and you shouldn't mess with it. You should just drink it with like a tiny little bit of water and that's it. And I was like, okay, got it. I'll, I'll just put a tiny little bit of water in my scotch and I won't touch it any other way. But then I'm staying in Edinburgh and I'm out for a walk one night and I'm walking through an alley and I mm-hmm. see this bizarre building. Uh, it was near uh, Waverly Station for those that have visited and uh there's uh there's an alley right nearby i don't remember the name of the alley and and there was this just this three-story structure and i was fascinated by it and it turned out that it was the voodoo rooms which was this kind of molecular tiki craft cocktail bar hidden in an alley gorgeous room once you're inside once you're out of the alley and upstairs and i sit down and the first drink i ordered had lafroig so heavily peated whiskey, smoky, elegant, and they mixed it in a drink that came out fizzing and bubbling. It was molecular mixology. And I was just like, well, you're not allowed to do that. And then the bartender was like, you can do anything you want. And I was like, oh, okay. As long as, as long as you understand the principles of how to like balance, you know, sugar, acid, uh, flavor profiles that kind of sync in terms of like a classic flavor wheel. Uh, something, for example, like lavender mixes with rosemary, which both of which can pair with strawberry and blueberry, you know, like classic flavor pairing uh, science, food science. And so immediately set to work to learning those things and learning how and when to be goofy and how and when to be very controlled and very uh, deliberate with what I was what I, I was mixing together. And and finding the best ways to honor spirits, but also making them visually interesting. Um, so that was a big experience in my bartending career was going to Scotland, seeing both the very traditional side of scotch, but also seeing that you had up and coming bartenders that had grown up around scotch and were like, all the old rules don't really matter as long as you're having fun. And, and you're not just completely destroying the spirit with a bad mix. And so I took that lesson and I came back to Canada. And I went back to the same restaurant that I'd been at before. And I was like, I know what I'm going to do now. I'm going to be your bartender. <laughs> and they're like, what do we pay you for that? And it was like a whole thing because it's like no one in the history of that restaurant that had been open for 20 years had ever just been a bartender. Um, wow. But we, we set about to renovating the space. I read the book uh, PDT at the time by Jim Meehan. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he had uh, examples of how to set up a bar for optimal use. And, and I... And as mentioned with the Japanese bartenders, I used to watch a video, uh, and I'm not going to think of his name in time, but there was a, a video that you can find on YouTube if you type Japanese hard shake, and it was sponsored by Beefeater, I believe. And you had one of the iconic Japanese bartenders demonstrating how to do like the, the Japanese like three-point hard shake, as well as Japanese stirring technique, because everything they do is very, very technical and very elegant. And uh, so I just, I had no one to show me stuff. So I just sat there and watched the videos over and over and over again, and just practiced over and over, literally for like probably a year or two before I felt like my shake looked cool. So I, oh. I simultaneously set out to learn flavor pairing, to learn mm-hmm. technical skill, 
and to learn the history of every popular drink in pretty much any country that ever had cocktails. <laughs> and so, for instance, if you were in uh, Brazil, you had to learn how to make a caipirinha, which is when you take muddled lime, fresh lime with sugar, and then cachaça, which is their national spirit and is an agricole. It's basically an agricole rum. Uh, it's made in the same fashion, but when it's made in Brazil, it's called cachaça, as an example. You know, pisco, which is new make brandy, and then making a sour with it. It, it didn't take me very long to realize that a pisco sour and a whiskey sour are the same thing. You just substitute out the spirit. So if you have a really good standard formula, and so my formula for a sour would be two parts spirit, one part fresh citrus that makes sense for the spirit. And then your sweet piece, uh, we usually do a rich syrup. So that's two parts sugar to one part water simmered until clarified. And so that would be a, a simple syrup. Uh, if you're using a standard sugar, cane sugar, demerara sugar, of course, every every component of everything can be toggled and changed, right? So again, cycling back to that one idea of a sour, you have two parts spirit, one part acid, which would generally be your citrus, lemon, or lime, and then a half part of sugar to taste, to balance. And, and if you just follow that ratio across the board, that'll make every sour that you've ever read about in every book from the 1800s till now. And it's really about finding the right spirit, right, uh, right type of acid and right type of sugar to get a nice synergy. Um, so I, the first sour I ever learned was a Pisco sour because I was reading about the history of like South American drinks, but then very quickly realized I could use the same exact ratios to make a bourbon sour. And then, and then very quickly realized that that's where you could have fun with the fruit that you add to a drink. Because once you have that framework of the, the full bodied alcohol, the acidity and the sugar kind of making the framework, then something like, uh, uh, a popular uh, Vancouver sour is called the Hotel Georgia, where it's mm -hmm. gin, lemon, orgeat, which is an almond syrup, a little bit of orange flower water traditionally, and then egg whites uh, to make it a little creamier. When when I, I still make that drink, but then I very quickly realized if you added a little bit of calamansi mixed with the almond, mm -hmm. now you've got an entirely different drink. Take out the lemon, add in lime. You know, you're creating something that, is explosively viscerally good for the end <laughs> consumer. They they lose their minds for it and they can't quite understand how they got there because the amount of people that have told me I don't like gin, for example. Mm -hmm. And so my standard response oftentimes, and it's a little bit cheeky, so I say it with a smile on my face so that I, people don't feel insulted. But my standard response when somebody tells me that, that they don't like a spirit, I say there are no bad spirits, there are just bad mm -hmm. bartenders. <laughs> and, and I do mean that because because if it's a well-made spirit, I mean, sure, there are things, and you know as well as I do, that there are things uh, on the market that are just not very high-quality products, and that's one thing. But if it's a high-quality product that's made, you know, according to a fashion or according to the standards of that fashion, then it should be good, and it should be mixable. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So... Did you learn a lot of these techniques and skills on your own? And what resources did you use? Well, I'll, I'll nail it down to like three basic points. One was to travel and learn from people that were already better at it than I was. And I, I think you do that as well. So you can definitely appreciate you, you develop knowledge by basically 
like the Borg uh, assimilating knowledge from people that already have it. Yeah. Uh, the other, yeah. The other way of doing it was uh, with books. So like uh, books that were influential in my beginning, uh, Liquid Intelligence by David, David uh, Arnold. Uh, he is a scientist or was a scientist who did all kinds of experiments to truly understand the science behind let's say dilution, you know, shake versus stir forced, uh, forced suspension of oxygen when you shake, uh, versus emulsification when you add, uh, something that has like surfaction and emulsification, like an egg white, it got like hyper, hyper technical. So I, I, w I went to his talks. I read his book. I, I practiced his techniques. I would do stuff like that. There was a uh, joy of mixology, which was Gaz Reagan who's passed away, but I got to meet him a few times. Uh, incredible author, interesting guy. Um, and, and he, he helped me to learn just the family, like the, like basically he was like the scientist of, uh, of a different type. Um, uh, he, the classification of cocktails, the idea that all sours kind of sit in the same space, all daisies sit in the same space. So as long as you understand something about the, the basic, um, uh, genus of something that you could classify. Uh, which was fascinating. Um, the, uh, the more I got into it, the more I realized it's really a product of, of agriculture. And so I've been fortunate. My partner is a horticulturalist. So I learned a lot about plants from them. So plant world books and reading definitely helped. Going to festivals helped. Um, there haven't been as many lately. I, I can't remember why. <laughs> <laughs> the last few years, it feels like everything's kind of dipped off. But uh, but as much as possible, if somebody wants to get into bartending, traditional uh, festivals to go to, the um, Berlin Bar Con Convent should be a mecca for anyone uh, at some point in their life to go to Berlin and just take it all in. Um there's there's shows in Manchester. There's the Imbibe show in London, which I usually do now for work in a normal year. Mm -hmm. But I still, when I get a break, I get to walk around and meet producers. I get to meet. You walk into a room and there's 25 different producers of vermouth from Italy, and you can ask them any question you want, uh, and you can taste any of their vermouths. It's just you know, it's wild. So yeah. getting to meet people in person is always. It, I think it's soul enriching, but it also helps you to like extract little bits of information that you wouldn't think to look for if you were simply just reading a book. Um, and then yeah, practice. Yeah, practice, practice, practice. The other thing about bartending, like I said, I learned techniques from people, but then I've never been a bartender that just wanted to uh, be a, an ambassador and just be the face of something. Um, I wanted to actually do the work. So uh, as an example, uh, like we, we've had nights busy enough in the last year, even with uh, limited seating capacity, where we're making hundreds of cocktails in a night. And if, once you've made 300 cocktails a night for years on end, you're going to get better. <laughs> That's very true. And I also remember when I spoke to you, you mentioned that you have a lot of side projects aside from just yeah. a bartender, like you're yeah. a consultant for, you said Benny Shogun, I forgot the name, Benny Shogun? Oh, well, yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah, we don't usually talk about those projects, but uh, since you've already <laughs> said the name, uh, yeah, I do have to sign a lot of NDAs, but um 
so, but uh, like more loosely, I can say, yeah, like Benihana in the States has been a, a client where we help bigger groups achieve consistency by by developing products that we uh, that we make for them under their specifications. So, yeah, that's definitely well, I guess loosely we can definitely talk about that. Um, any casual chain that kind of comes to mind that you're thinking of right now chances are there's something on their menu that we've helped develop. And I feel really good about that because uh, as mentioned, there was a time where if you looked at it, for instance, a slush machine, you're like, oh, whatever's going in there is probably garbage, right? It's probably just powdered junk. But that's not necessarily the case anymore. Um, you can you can make things with like real fresh fruit and real sugars and then, and then just understanding how to balance acidity. Uh, something that I often do uh, as an example, when you're doing something scaled up, it's bigger in size. Maybe you can't use a fresh squeezed juice if it's going to be something that's distributed to 400 locations. But what you can do is is develop uh, techniques around maybe mixing a few different type of food grade acids, not just citric acid, but also malic acid, ascorbic acid, vitamin C, and putting them together in a, in a blend where it, your palate perceives it as being very fresh. Um, and, and so I actually really enjoy that type of work. So the food science, food development side of things is where my passion lies now. And I guess yeah. that's a logical extension of where bartending has taken me. I'm also very curious because you said you worked with Better's Bitters, a yeah. company that makes bitters. So what do you do there? Uh, early on in my career, you know, and I, I continue to have respect for these brands, uh, but uh, Angostura is pretty ubiquitous in the in the industry as kind of the global standard for aromatic bitters. Peychaud's is a famous uh, type of bitters from New Orleans. It's notable for a lot of people because it's bright red. So it put that idea in my head that some bitters should have like a color component that people use them for. Um and it was really hard to buy some of these things. In the beginning, you could always go into a Safeway and get Angostura, and it was, it was relatively inexpensive. Uh, but Peychaud's 20 years ago, for a Canadian to buy it, you had to actually get it shipped from the Peychaud's company down in New Orleans. Um, it, was, it was a bit of a process. And so that put an idea in my head that if I ever got the opportunity... I would like to make my own bitters that like that started off as doing little tinctures and stuff, solo flavor extractions, not fully understanding the perfumery that goes into it. The idea that you would have um, certain things like orris root, whatever that are fixatives that lock in flavor, like uh, a quick little tip for people. If you're doing grapefruit bitters, for instance, grapefruit peel is very vibrant for the first, let's say day or two, but then it, the flavors collapse. So then you need to bring in other botanicals that can kind of lock it in place and keep it vibrant. Um, I didn't have a great understanding of that. I, I was trying to learn on my own and I just had the bizarre good fortune that one day while I was running uh bambuda in Gastown, which Shout out to anyone who ever had drinks at Bambuda. There was a lot of people, so maybe somebody watching did. Um, we had the just a world-famous food scientist. And, and I say famous in the industry because people aren't going to know his name necessarily because he keeps a very low profile. Uh, lots of NDAs. Um, but um, his name's Philip Unger, and he walked in, and he was like this whirling dervish of – he had all this energy. He can speak nine languages. He's, he's eclectic. He's, his brain is always like firing at like 10 different ideas. He constantly comes up with new innovative solutions. And I mean, 
this is when he was already in his 50s when I met him. And he just, he brings this energy. He's now in his early 60s, or he's 60. You hate for me to say 60s. He's 60 as of uh, like a month ago. And he still has this uh, vitality that is absolutely incredible and, and awe-inspiring. Um, he was the first person to kind of come to me and be like, I have the facilities, I have the knowledge, I have the business relationships. What you have is an understanding of flavors and you're really good at what you do. Let me show you a little bit of what I do and let's see what we can come up with. And I, and then he introduced me to his, his daughter, Sam, who's a perfumer and they were already developing a few small, uh, bitters flavors. Uh, that weren't publicly sold. They were made specifically for some different companies. Um, and it didn't feel like launching a bitters company might be the best idea uh, mm -hmm. initially because you already had um, other companies. Even in Vancouver, there were already two other multinational bitters companies uh, selling products. And so the idea of entering that market seemed a little daunting. But then the thing that really pivoted it was um, Philip had a friend with an allergy to eggs. So he wanted to come up with a solution for how to get uh, the creamy frothiness into a cocktail. And he developed the, uh, the botanical foamer that is now known as the miraculous foamer from his betters. Um, and the second he brought that to me, it was, it was, it was life-changing because at that point I was like, well, now oh, now we absolutely have to launch a company. We like, now we need a company because now you've created a new category in the marketplace. Um, the foamer worked on so many different levels. If you're vegan, well, now you have a vegan option that's shelf stable and, and it was compact, which makes sense for a lot of professional bars. Back when I used egg whites in bars, uh, you know, your containers of egg whites, that could be liters of egg white occupying mm -hmm. precious fridge space. So having something that sat on top of your bar in a tiny little four ounce bottle was amazing doing that work has been incredibly fun and that one's fun also because nobody uses uh, bitters as much as bartenders so it gives me an excuse uh through work to have to travel the world and visit bars so you know uh, yeah, that sounds super fun <laughs> uh yeah so right now with the bitters company like how do you actually make and develop a bitters so you need neutral spirit, at okay. least we do, because we, we do maceration in neutral spirit. So you, you start off with your overproof spirit, and then you're doing macerations. Uh, pretty similar once you, if somebody's on the distillation side and they get into making liqueurs, oftentimes, you know, you're macerating your fruit peels and, and things in, in your overproof. Uh, we don't end up, like, we don't do the distillation process for the bitters, it's purely maceration and extraction. Sometimes we'll have different elements that are extracted separately and then we combine them together. Or sometimes we have all the botanicals in one container all at once. Depends on what we need from the, the botanicals. As I mentioned, you use some botanicals for flavor, some as fixatives to lock in flavor. And, and then you have your bittering agents, which is pretty standard for something called bitters. Um, <laughs> On their own, bitters are considered non-potable, and that's not to mean that they're poisonous, but to mean that they're not meant for consumption straight from the bottle. That that changes kind of the taxation structure of them. They're mm -hmm. they're actually more closely lumped together as a, a food group, even though mm -hmm. at time of bottling, our stuff is forty percent alcohol. 
So basically, yeah, we macerate, we extract flavor, and then we get the proof down to about 80 proof. And then um, we filter because you don't want too much particles in there. So we do a lot oh, of yeah. filtration is a big part of it. And then uh, once it's in the bottle, hopefully we have a, a product that's reasonably stable. It's never as stable as a bottled spirit. Mm-hmm. But uh, on average, a bottle of bitters should be good for at least about eight months to a year, depending on the flavor. Fruit tends to collapse. So your orange and your grapefruits, stuff like that will go first. Mm-hmm. Lime leaf will collapse. But then aromatics and some of those hardier botanicals, those will those will last for years. It sounded like making bitters was a lot like just making liqueurs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there are certain things that... Uh, I think uh, like if a bar or sorry, not a bar, if a distillery can make it, there are certain things that I think every distillery should have. And and again, this is just an opinion. So take it with a grain of salt. I think that if you're focused on white spirits, you should probably have a vodka, you should probably have a gin. Uh, You should probably explore what other interesting botanical spirits are out there. Um, If you're making liqueurs, I think a lot of people will do things that might work really well at a, um, let's say, a a craft sale. Let's say like a blackberry liqueur. That's fun. That's interesting. But if you want to get into bars, you need things that bars traditionally want. So a curacao and orange liqueur, every bar needs that. So that's something that you should have. Um, Other ones that everyone probably should consider, every bar typically uses something with elderflower. Every bar typically uses something that has a like a. Actually, I was saying that blackberry might not be the most useful, but but it is a pretty common one. It's it's common in, in a lot of English bars because one of the most popular cocktails uh, in England is uh, is a bramble, which is effectively a gin sour with blackberry like creme de mire poured over top. So, knowing that ahead of time is is probably. It, I, I would always recommend that anybody getting into distillation or into making bitters should absolutely know what's going on in bars so that they make things that make sense to the end users. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really awesome being able to talk to you because I know, like, I don't really talk to bartenders now that I think of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm always just stuck in the back and the production side talking about that. So this yeah. has been really illuminating. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, I, I, I believe that we're all on the same team. We're, we're taking something from the agricultural setting. So I think we should both have really good relationships with farmers and people should understand what goes into farming. And, and we should all be aware of, you know, how we take care of our natural resources mm-hmm. so that we have the best quality, best possible ingredients being uh, curated by people that are properly respected for what they do. And then move that into what we do with those agricultural products, which I think is the most fascinating thing about uh, distillation. That idea of the, you know, the eau de vie, the water of life, that we that we took something that was perishable and we converted it into something that it could live on. And then, and then ultimately, then when we get to the bar side of things, to me, that's the culture and the community, and that's where everyone comes together to enjoy the product of the harvest, basically. Uh, much like you do with food, beverage is the same thing. We use it to celebrate. We use it to um, to curate relationships at its best. Obviously, you could you could make arguments for other things, but uh, but it definitely at its best is 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 something that adds quality of life enhancement for a lot of people. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think that if bartenders have a good relationship with people in distilling, everybody gets to work together and they get to make things that really tell a story about the place that they're from, which we're at a very exciting time in BC, especially in Western Canada, because we now have single malt whiskeys, we have, we have botanical spirits, we have liqueurs that all represent, you know, the harvests of, of uh, Western Canada, which is something that didn't exist as as a commercial product as recently as like 20 years ago largely you had a few producers but nowhere near as many as you did do now and then uh and then on the bar side i think more and more people that have an appreciation of this idea that uh that they're not just going to order a the same drink everywhere they go for the rest mm-hmm. of their life like every bar i ever go to i love a margarita but, but it's kind of a bummer if somebody just orders a margarita at every single bar that they ever go to, especially if that bar can provide them something that is that is of the place. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today, Tarquin. <laughs> Thanks for letting me talk at the camera for an hour. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure people will find this really interesting. Thank you so much, Tarquin. Bye. Bye.